Tell me what you just said. I, I like you when you give me cookies. You like me when, when I give you cookies, but you don't like me all the time? Yeah, no. Why? But I like you only like you again get cookies from me. Oh, so only when I give you cookies do you like me? Yeah. Oh, okay, I love you. I, I love you too, but I, I, I like you all the time. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> At least he's honest. I love you, but I don't always like you. I mean, there is a difference between the two. And in this series, we're talking about how God likes you. And I'd, let me just say, if you're here and you speak Spanish, our interpreter is in room V. We'd love to interpret this service for you in Spanish. And can we thank Tad and Tyrone for coming up and being our host today? And you're going to love the barbecue tacos uh, that we have out there. It's going to be a great day today. Well, in this series, last week, John Burke got us kicked off and we're looking at the book of Ephesians. And our hope is that if you're not someone who's had a, a habit of spending time with God reading the scriptures, that you might start to develop that. In fact, what I would encourage you to do is just read a chapter of Ephesians a day between now and next Sunday. Oh, or if you do that, by the way, it'll only take you about five minutes. And what you do when you read the scriptures is you then learn to pick out a phrase, maybe meditate on that phrase, memorize that phrase, think about that phrase throughout the day of how you can apply it to your life. And you pray to God through the scriptures. You, you read and then you ask him to help you believe this or ask him to help you live this out, whatever it is that really hits your heart. Or maybe you want to go bonus. Read through Ephesians every day this week. It'll only take you 20 minutes to read through the entire letter. But last week, John Burke looked at chapter one and read about something really remarkable, how God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, that when you and I enter into relationship with God, we have access to all of God's spiritual blessings. Now, in Ephesians 1.3, the translation of that word blessing, it's also the word eulogy or to speak well of. Think about what that means. God's spoken good things about you. He's pronounced good things for our benefit. And then right in the midst of that, Paul goes on a rant for basically what's in our Bibles, 11 verses. It's all one sentence. 202 Greek words describing these spiritual blessings really showing that Jesus is a fulfillment of the blessings listed in Psalm 103. That God's love for us and the access to us that we have through Jesus is transformational. And so today we're looking in chapter two and, and we're looking more about purpose. What's the point? And the answer to this question is critical as we know because it affects every realm of your life. What's the point of my marriage, you might be asking? Is it to get someone to serve me and do my bidding? Probably not gonna work. Well, what's the point of my parenting? Is it to create perfectly behaved kids? That's probably not gonna work. What's the point of being single? Is it to have unlimited freedom to do whatever I want whenever I want? Well, that probably won't work either. 
Or what's the point of my job? Is it to get me more money so I can buy more stuff? Well, it might work in the short time, short term, but not in the long haul. You'll find yourself chasing the wind. That's what the scripture says, is that when we're kind of wandering through life, trying to figure out meaning, disconnected from the one who created us, it's like chasing the wind. Trying to do this and that, trying to fulfill whatever selfish motive we have in the moment can actually wreak havoc on our relationships and even on our identity. Because ultimately, deep down, we ask ourselves, we ask God, who am I and why am I even here? So where do we go to find our purpose, our identity? There's a story called Longings by Stephen James. He writes, television commercials annoy me. I could probably just stop there and you're in total agreement, right? But he keeps going. He says, television commercials are always telling me my car isn't sporty enough, my breath isn't fresh enough, my armpits aren't dry enough, my investments aren't secure enough, my teeth aren't bright enough, my beer isn't filling enough, and my insurance company isn't cheap enough. And that I'll be cooler and happier, hipper, more popular, pain-free and handsome if I just chew their brand of gum, use their brand of athlete's foot cream, and wipe my rump with their brand of squeezably soft toilet paper. None of the commercials have to convince me that I don't have enough joy, peace, freedom, love, friendship, or satisfaction in my life. The advertisers just take that for granted. In fact, they put a magnifying glass up to my longings and then offer me solutions both of us know won't work. That's the kicker. And the worst part is that I keep watching their commercials. I keep buying their stuff. I keep hoping that maybe they're right after all, that all these deep nagging desires will finally go away if I use their product. That happiness really will come from a can of shaving cream or a tube of toothpaste. If this world of chalupas and dandruff shampoo and Viagra is all there is, how come I have hungers that none of those things ever seem to satisfy? See, he goes on this rant because he has seen in his own life what many of us have experienced is that joy and meaning and peace can be elusive. See, most of the time, what we go to to find meaning is actually pointless, and we end up with buyer's remorse. Like the girl who thought this time she'd be fulfilled. I mean, he said all the right things before at the bar, and she bought it, but she wakes up in the morning with buyer's remorse. Or he walks in the garage, he had to have it in red, but how long do I have to pay for this? Buyer's remorse. Or he logs onto the site thinking, I can stop anytime I want, something seductive about it, but afterwards, buyer's remorse. He's just self-medicating, trying to anesthetize just one hit every few days, then every day, and now it's every night just to get some sleep. Suffering from profound anxiety and extreme insecurity. It's gotta fix it. But once again, buyer's remorse. Or she works 70 hours a week, killing herself for success, burning through relationship, respect, writing on every business deal, never got a blessing from her father, and now, with every deal, buyer's remorse. Or he says to himself, it's just comfort food, but he ate the whole box, and it was family size. He's stuffed, and yet he's hungrier than ever. Buyer's remorse. Because one cup leads to two, and now it's five scoops instead of two, and a six-pack used to do it, now it takes a fifth of whiskey, and two hits is what I used to be on, and so on, and so on. And it's all pointless. They're all symptoms trying to cover the 
sadness, the longings deep within us. Philip Yancey talks about how we even take the good things that God gives us and turn them into God's. He says, by assuming a burden we were not meant to carry, we can turn nudity into pornography and wine into alcoholism and food into gluttony and human diversity into racism and prejudice. Despair descends as we abuse God's good gifts. They seem no longer gifts and no longer good. Rather than turning to the creator to find meaning, we turn to the created things. And so looking at Ephesians 2, we're gonna look first at verses one and two. And I want you to to listen to the state of humanity before God came to rescue us. Let's watch Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We were all walking around like zombies, spiritually dead. There's another version of this called the message that says, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. See, when humans live pointless lives that are riddled with the consequences of selfish behavior, this is what we experience, chasing the wind. Now, if you took the challenge of reading through Ephesians this last week, you may have come upon uh, chapter two, verse three, which may have made you uh, pause for a moment, which goes on to say, not only did we arrive in this world as spiritually dead zombies, but like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And we see that word wrath, and it's like, oh, goodness, this is why I don't read the Bible. We come across words that come to bring an angry God to mind. It just kind of heaps onto us this idea, well, this is why I don't turn to God, because God is angry. That's the God I heard about as a kid. But in many ways, we think of our earthly fathers as mirrors of the heavenly father. And so as a result, the words wrath, which really is, in this case, talking about consequences, the day of the Lord or or God's judgment is about how he's going to bring justice to all things. God forgives iniquity and rebellion and sin, but he doesn't let the unpunished go forever. So how can this be consistent with a loving God, a God who likes us and yet there's this wrath that he has. See, some of us in this room have been victim of a parent figure's anger. Maybe our parents weren't physical, but maybe they were. But many of us grew up in a toxic environment, and to think that didn't affect us would be naive. In fact, that's why we went through a series we just did called Triggered. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to it at my website. That's why so many of us are at open share on Wednesday nights. So many of us have worked the steps of recovery. See, but here's the problem. Anger is one of the primary emotions we project onto God. We think of God as angry and vengeful, and so we don't really want to know him, or we wonder why, if he's angry at us, for our sins and shortcomings, would we even trust him? 
Each of us has probably had to grapple with that at one point or another. But the scriptures tell us, even in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that he emphasizes over and over, there's one thing you need to know about me, I am slow to anger. And God's anger is never sinful, like what we've demonstrated on planet Earth. Our version of anger is filled with acrimony and bitterness. But God's anger is just and righteous. Yes, God gets angry about sin, but his anger doesn't change his posture towards you and me. Over and over and over, the scriptures tell us that God is loving and compassionate and kind, bestowing favor on thousands of generations for those who love him and trust him. But he's also just. And by the way, we want that. In fact, many of us feel like God does not show his anger enough at all the evils in the world. And we complain about evil and injustice and wonder why God hasn't wiped out all evil, forgetting that that would mean he'd have to wipe out all of us. But if we are honest, we want justice, but as long as it's not pointed towards us. But here's what we must understand. Wrath is God's loving response to the evil in this world. This wrath, this day of the Lord, is the same as God making all things right. God loves all people, and he hates the evil that hurt all people. Just as a loving father or mother hates the evil that we see our children experience. He does not want us to suffer. In fact, he's made a way out of his wrath, taking upon himself the wrath himself on the cross. But here's the other trick is sometimes not fully understanding this leads to another pointless activity. We think of this angry God, and so we gotta do things to get him to like us thinking that religious zeal will turn his heart towards us. Trying to negotiate, if I do enough good things, then God will like me, then God will forgive me, then God will love me. If you know the story of Paul, the author of Ephesians, then you know he went that direction. We can learn a lot about him through the book of Acts, which tells much of the history of his story, and through the letters that he wrote to church leaders and to churches that he started. But what's interesting, at the last verse of chapter eight in Acts, you see that Paul is there with men who were stoning to death a man named Stephen, who was proclaiming that God had come to rescue us and that his name is Jesus. And they felt threatened by that. In fact, Saul's devotion to God meant he was trying to purify Israel so that the Messiah could come. And so in his mind, that means getting rid of all of these Christians. He thought killing Christians would help with that. And on his way to Damascus to persecute, to to be a part of incarcerating or even killing more believers, he was blinded. In a vision of Jesus, he hears his words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul surrendered his life to Jesus and became one of Jesus' greatest advocates, a church planner, a missionary, an author of most of the letters of the New Testament. If you missed our series this summer called The Way of Jesus, you can go to my website to to read some of these books that he wrote and see more of the context of what's happening. See, religion is our attempts to get to God, but we have to understand God came to us and offers us a relationship. God loves you. God likes you. God wants a relationship 
with you. The point is not trying to please God to earn his favor. He already loves us. We already have his favor. It's how are we gonna respond to his love that determines the trajectory of our life. See, Paul met Jesus, and in Jesus he found the point. Or maybe you can say the point of life found him. Listen to what he writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This passage revolutionized my life. When I fully began to understand the message of Jesus, uh, we, we were born into a broken world. We're wandering around like spiritual zombies. We're seeing the consequences of evil all around us. And yet in the midst of that, God rescues us. He saved us by his grace, which means his unconditional, undeserved love. And you can't take credit for this. You can't take credit for being rescued by God. It's a gift. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. Otherwise, we'd start boasting about it. But instead, God chose you, offers you new life. And when you say yes, you have the opportunity to grow to become the person he's created you to be, the masterpiece he's created you to be. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he's planned for us to do. So what's the point? The point of life is that you were created to be in a relationship with God, to find your identity in him and through him. And the amazing thing is he did all the work to make this possible. Why? Because you were created as his masterpiece. I don't know if you were raised in a context where your parents told you that you are God's masterpiece. It's not something we normally think. I mean, even as parents, we try to help our kids know what they're doing wrong so they can get better to just make it in this world. The scriptures tell us that you are God's masterpiece. And yeah, we might be covered up with a little bit of mud or maybe a lot of mud, but he sees who you really are, who you can be when you fully trust him, when you fully follow him. He's created you on purpose and with a purpose. And so the point is to be in relationship with him, which roots your identity in him. He did this for all of us because God likes us. He rooted your identity in a relationship with him and he designed in you and for you a purpose for living. See, a relationship with him is what roots our true identity and the good works he designed in us and for us gives us purpose. See, identity is not so much about who you are, it's about whose you are. So oftentimes we put our identity in the wrong things. Do you know, I just realized uh, maybe six months or so ago that my driver's license said that I had blonde hair. 
I haven't had blonde hair in probably 20 years. Really, for hair, it should say none. <laughs> Our identity is, is not what we look like. It's not where we came from. Our identity is rooted in the one who created us out of love and gave us life and put us at this place in history, at this time in history, that we might find him, have a relationship with him and grow to become all he's created us to be. And the beautiful thing is he's, he has beautiful opportunities for you and me. He's created us for good works. And the more we follow him, the more he makes evident what he has for us to do. See, if we don't see our identity rooted in the one who created us and our purpose emanating from that relationship, then everything and every attempt that we make to be filled and known and grounded will get confusing and frustrating and eventually leave you feeling as though everything is pointless. Rather than feeling like a masterpiece, we feel more like a rag doll. But this word in the Greek is poema, masterpiece. It references even this, this English word we've used to, to, to translate it, poem. God's intent was that your life would tell a beautiful story, a life of poetry. But we have a free will given to us by God. Because of, that's what God does for us, that's what love does for us, is give us freedom. But in this freedom, too often we choose to go our own way. And when we do this, we disrupt the poetic verse that he has designed for our lives. Let me, let me give you an example. Robert Frost has this beautiful opening stanza in the famed poem, The Road Not Taken. It, it reads this way. Two ro roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler along I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. That's what the author intended. That's what the poem is supposed to sound like. But when we take it and go our own way, it might sound up, end up sounding something like this, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, I like pepperoni and sausage on my pizza. It's disruptive, it's not nearly as beautiful, it makes no sense. See, our life is written as a beautiful poem, and you are telling a beautiful story when you connect with God, when you trust God, when you follow God, when you allow him to create in you who he's created you to be, your life tells a beautiful story. And here's what's amazing. Even when we go off track, we start telling a different story. He gives us the opportunity to start again, to move away from the disruption, what's not beautiful, and the confusion. See, we find our meaning, our purpose, our identity in the one who created us, the one who loves us, the one who wants a relationship with us. And here's what's amazing. The, the more you lean into that relationship with God, the more his specific purposes for us become more and more clear. I mean, for me, it has required a lot of reflection on my uniqueness, my strengths, my personality, my ancestry, my passions, a lot of time in prayer and in the scriptures, a lot of small acts of obedience have helped me find a clearer and clearer path that God has for me. See, what you gotta discover is that as we serve others and lose our life doing so, that's how we find our life and find our calling. 
It's a lot of doing the right thing, no matter how small it might be. It's a lot of responding to the still small voice, inviting you to do something selfless and courageous. It's a lot of pursuing God and trusting his voice. There's a lot of believing Jesus and trusting him even when it doesn't make sense. See, finding your purpose is just as beautiful as the journey to discovering it because along the way we experience the beauty of loving God and loving others. You know, maybe you're here and you're still searching for God and you're intrigued. I mean, that's even maybe why you're here. I want you to know that we have a group that's about to start meeting in just a couple weeks called Alpha where we look at life's most important questions over a meal. And if you're interested in that as someone who's searching or or considering God, or maybe even someone who's new to faith, I highly recommend that to you as something to jump into. But as chapter two continues, Paul, who's writing to the Ephesians, and in many ways, he's writing to all of us. It's the most general letter of all. It, It was written to be passed along to those who follow Jesus. And in writing that, he goes from talking about how each of us are his masterpiece And then he starts talking about how he actually creates one beautiful, diverse community out of all of humanity. It starts with being brought near to God, Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought into a new humanity, one without division based on ethnicity or religion. He writes this, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And we have access to the Father, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. He's telling you over and over and over, you are mine. You are invited into this new humanity, this new family. You're no longer foreigners and aliens. You're part of a new household. And then he says, you're even the new temple. We are built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when you read the scriptures from beginning to end, it starts with Eden where God and humanity interacted And then in our freedom, we chose to rebel, but God still intervened, showing up in the tabernacle, the place where you could go to meet God on planet Earth. And then the temple, a place to go where you could meet God on planet Earth. And then something remarkable happens. Jesus, the place where God is walking on planet Earth. And the earthly temple was destroyed, but we become the temple. See, the people who follow Jesus, we represent God to people on planet earth. We bring a glimpse of heaven everywhere we go. We are his temple, the body of Christ. And eventually, all of heaven will come to earth, the new heaven and earth, the last two chapters of the Bible look just like the first two, where there's no distinction, no difference between connecting with God and being in his presence. See, God doesn't just love you, he likes you, and he wants nothing more than have a relationship with you. And if you've wandered, to bring you back. If you haven't felt as close, to to press in more deeply. To find purpose in him. To discover the good works he has for you. My wife and I, when we moved here, it was difficult in many ways as our kids started into school. It was halfway through the school year. And it's hard going to a new school. But my daughter had the fortune of another new student named Chloe. 
and they became the best of friends. And Chloe's mom, Sunshine, and her dad, Chip, became friends of ours as well. And over the last several years, they would help us with rides for our daughter. We'd help with rides for their daughter. And more recently, Sunshine reached out. Her and her boyfriend, Louie, were curious about faith, curious, thinking there must be more to life than what they'd experienced. And they started coming this spring. And it's been so exciting, so amazing as she's asked me questions after the service, as she went and bought her first Bible, she started coming to our Gateway U class. And somewhere along the way, she sent me a text asking about, what was that verse you said today that tells us how to connect with God? It was Romans 10. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And this morning, she received a text. On this day, the day, this afternoon, when she's getting baptized, along with Louie and several others, on this morning, she woke up and, and opened up her phone and opened up the Bible app, and there was this verse that said, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. She sent it to me so excited. On this day, the day she's being baptized, in the month she celebrated her birthday, and she texted me this morning, once again, this shows me God has a plan for me. He always has. He's showing me his presence even more so today. See, God is pursuing each and every one of us. Do you see it? Do you want to see it? Today, her next step is to be baptized, to, to, to do on the outside what's already happened on the inside, being forgiven and, and washed clean to live a new life, dying to the old life to, to live a new life. And for some of you, maybe that's your next step. Maybe you've decided to follow Jesus, but you've kept it to yourself. Maybe today at Barton Springs Pool, the free side, and not at the lake where apparently dogs are dying. We're gonna do it at Barton Springs today at three o'clock. And if you're interested, if that's your next step, let us know at the Connect Spot. But I wanna walk us through a little assessment that Rob Overholt created based on a poem that Shala, his wife, wrote. And we're not gonna walk you through the whole poem, but I did wanna just break down this word identity, which I think she just brilliantly used to help us understand our purpose. Five simple steps to arrive at a conclusion that informs where we are currently finding our identity. And so let me just walk you through this. The word identity is broken down like this. I, self, the me I think I am, the me I am pretending to be, the image I'm trying to curate. So I want you just in this moment to ask yourself, ask God this question. God, will you remind me now of who you say I am? Just allow this to be a moment where you interact with God. God, will you remind me now of who you say I am? Identity, ID, it's a name, a label, the titles others have given me, some good, some not. Ask God this question. God, please tell me, how do I know the difference between who you see I am and what others have said about me? Identity, ident, 
I get hurt, broken, warped, diminished by others. Ask God, God, what is hurting me right now? Identity, ident it. I hurt and break others, hurt people, hurt people. Whom have I hurt recently? Ask God, God, to whom do I need to be reconciled? And finally, entity. A lie I have believed about myself and others, that I am something to be used to give other pleasure to others. This is also a way I see others in order to use them for my purposes or pleasure. Ask God the question, God, will you search me and reveal any distortions? So you and I were never meant to live independently from the one who created us, the one who loves us, from our heavenly father who came to rescue us and he walked among us. That's why Jesus willingly gave his life dying on the cross for you and me, taking upon himself all evil, the consequences, the wrath, that we might have a relationship with him when we simply say, God, what you did on the cross, I need to count for me. Forgive me, God. Lead me, Jesus, to become who you want me to be. And it's because of gratitude for God's love for us that he likes us. That's why we begin to live a new life. That's why we start living differently, wanting to honor him, wanting to please him, doing the good works, not to get to him, but out of gratitude for him. The band is gonna sing a song they wrote, actually, Hannah and Aaron, and during the song, I want you to listen to the lyrics and let God speak to you and to show you your next step.